Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Early in the 21st century, the Tyrell Corporation advanced robot evolution into the Nexus phase, a being virtually identical to a human, known as a replicant. The Nexus 6 replicants were superior in strength and agility, and at least equal in intelligence to the genetic engineers who created them. Replicants were used off-world as slave labor in the hazardous exploration and colonization of other planets. After a bloody mutiny by a Nexus 6 combat team in an off-world colony, replicants were declared illegal on Earth under penalty of death. Special police squads, Blade Runner units, had orders to shoot to kill, upon detection, any trespassing replicant. This was not called execution. It was called retirement. You may be just about to hear a real radio show, or it may just be a replica. George, put the taser away. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined on your radio left by the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers and many, many, many other movies. He's our film guy. Mr. J. Todd Anderson, J. Todd. Thank you very much, Nikki. Secret decoder ring. Mm-hmm. That secret decoder might even come in. On your radio left, and the largest frame brain in the planet, also uh, our man at the Library of Congress, an I-Trait film archivist at the Library of Congress. He's George Willeman. George, welcome. So you find a turtle laying on its back, <laughs> and you give it a spin. How do you like that? <laughs> Wasn't as good as the, the guy we called in to do the opening. <laughs> Many of us may already recognize uh, the uh, movie that we're doing today. Uh, J. Todd, tell us. This is Blade Runner, 1982, which there have been many variations made of this picture. We're going to discuss a little bit of that, about that and, and why we think the original is the most important. But each of them is, sort of has a relevance in its own way, but we'll get to all that. A relevance that. to the studio because they keep <laughs> making money. Cha-ching! And Ridley Scott keeps getting them checks. That's right. Let's take a moment to remind all of us that uh, these movies are not picked just uh, on a whim. They pass very rigid and stringent rules for perfectness. And gentlemen, what are those rules? Great Runner creates a world existing. And it wholly sustains that world. Regardless of changes in society, Blade Runner retains its meaning and entertainment value. And Blade Runner will never be placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. It is perfect within its own scale. That sidewalk vendor in the movie, you Blade Runner. Yeah. They arrest you. Yeah, they arrest you. You're going to come arrested. <laughs> there was quite a cast of characters here, in addition quite to Ridley cast. Scott, who, George, I think you pointed out to me, the man has made a movie. He's made a every... movie almost every year since he started working. He's starting with The Duelists in 1977, Alien, Blade Runner, Hannibal, Gladiator, Someone to Watch Thelma Over Me, Louise. Black Rays, uh, Black Rain, yeah, Thelma and Louise, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing. Et cetera. He's one of our modern Iron Man directors, you know, uh, kind of like some of the directors we appreciate. And he is still around working with 
great frequency, and he's not slowing down. Mm-mm. Well, five years into his career, he managed to uh, gather together some of the a, a very impressive cast: uh, Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, who's mm-hmm. just beautiful in this film; uh, Edward James Olmos, M. Emmett Walsh, who you remind me was in from Raising Arizona. <laughs> also, uh, uh, Daryl Hannah, uh, William Sanderson, and one of my favorite character actors ever, Brian James, and okay. more, many more. Great. And Joe Turkel, who was a favorite of. Um, Stanley Kubrick. Uh-huh. Probably jo- best remembered as the bartender Lloyd in The Shining. Oh, Joanna shit. Cassidy uh, was really on top of her arc back then, too. She has some of the most seductive scenes in this picture. Mm. And she also beats a snot out of Harrison Ford. <laughs> you know, it's one thing. You might want to kind of watch this movie from the aspect. How many times does Harrison Ford get beat, get the snot beat out of him? You really feel sorry for him. <laughs> and he's always looking into the camera. Well, I'm tough enough to take it again and again. And he does this at least twice in this picture. Very much in Raiders of the Lost Ark when the Germans beaten and beating him up. But in this movie here, of course, they get the old gag out of the way. The girl comes up from behind and shoots the bad guy. Well, they get that out of the way. But... Interestingly enough, at the end of this picture, um, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Oh, please. yes, at the um, end. What, what happens at the end? And it's worth noting that at the end of this picture, Harrison Ford does the same gag. He gets beat up. And you expect somebody to come from behind and shoot the person that's beating him up, who's Rucker Howard. But Rucker Howard just dies on his own accord. He just collapses. Just and the dove and goes away. <laughs> so he gets off easy, you know? But we're still feeling bad that he got beat up. But that's become kind of a Harrison Ford trait of getting beat up. You know, Which later. is maybe why he doesn't like this movie so much. Because it just <laughs> constantly was getting, actually, from what I understand, everybody on this film was getting beat up, including the crew. It was kind of it a, was a rough, hard, hard film shoot. Yeah, but I mean, I th- the movie is so good. I think I, I hope he can find a way one day to look back and be proud of this work. But apparently, not only was he getting beat up, but but I mean, there, there was hard hardness between tension. Like the Ridley Scott and he weren't even speaking. I guess right. There there that happens all the time. Really, all the time. It makes it a better movie. <laughs> Because when they're really pissed off, they you look great on screen. That. You know. Right. Plus the fact you tell him to tell him to tell me, okay? Don't and, have him tell me. And to that point where the actor is not going to let this director tell him what to do, and he's going to do it. That's right. You know, And he's going to show this guy he didn't have to talk to him to do a good movie. You just tell the PA and the craft service person to tell that person that's a grip in the electric to tell me, to tell Ridley Scott what I just told you guys, okay? Okay. Got it? it? Happens all the time. <laughs> Just don't ask the honey wagon driver to bring you coffee. You know, <laughs> one of the funny, one of the more interesting aspects of this movie, I'll get this out of the way real quick, is this is supposed to be 2019, which isn't too far so away. So funny when you see that. And, yeah, that, L.A. They got to get busy because I, I want one of those flying cars. You know? <laughs> there are some similarities in this picture. For instance, an example, when I'm in New York City and I traverse through 42nd Street and all that has gotten so oh, much yeah. taller in the 25 years that I've been going there. It's just going up into the sky. And I'm thinking, this is Blade Runner. Well, and the huge <laughs> and the humongous lit signs yes. everywhere. Big I mean, so- signs, just like this movie. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely uh, visually stunning. Do we want to give just a quick sort of... Yeah, wait I a mean, minute. A few more comparisons. Sure, just sure, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. The eyeball retina scan. Interesting. That's being done a lot today. Mm-hmm. Although it's clumsy and mechanical in this picture. Um, and one of the things that I really hate... 
is the noisy computers that they still have on television now. <laughs> yeah. They're always making tons of well, they're racket. making like mechanical uh, device noises. They're yeah. Sounds like cams and levers, and he's going, you know, that's a little long in there. Close, move over, you know. Okay, I got the suspense, Harrison. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you're making all this noise like hamsters, and then you watch <laughs> ER now, and again, well, they have the same problem. Their and actually, if I might, one of my favorite things when watching it uh, just, you know, for this show is at the end of that sequence where he's looking at the photographs, he asks for a hard copy, and it spits out a Polaroid <laughs> picture. <Yeah. laughs> Now this Which, is, yes, they are making film for Polaroid cameras again. Yes. They are. Not Polaroid, but another company's making but it, but think still. Of, yeah. Think of your other future movies and how this is a brave step to take to make a futuristic movie, Fahrenheit 451, RoboCop. Mm-hmm. Um, how many times have they tried to st- – and all of a sudden you catch up, 1984. Right. Uh, but, you know, if you're smart, like Roddenberry and those boys, you went centuries, you know, beyond. Right. So that way there's no comparison, uh, Star Trek and, and Space uh, – uh, Space, Space uh, 1999. <laughs> no. I love no, I that know. show. Star Wars, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> right. But anyway, I just it's hard to not make the comparison of how things look now and how we're getting very close to how like, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I remember. We've overrun it. Right. You know? yeah. um, and there are some things, and principally the one thing, that the glaring thing is is the building structure in New York City. It's looking like George said, those big signs. <laughs> you know? And you had an interesting point uh, when we were talking earlier that, that you suspect there might even be a chance that Times Square – actually took the movie as a... Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I would say everything. I mean, that's one of the things I guess we'll, we'll talk about, hopefully, is that this film has affected the look of so many things, and not just other science fiction films. But actual things in the real world, Th- like possibly in, even Times Square. Even Times Square, even fashions. Um, yeah. You know, because you've got all the people out there who are the, the, the darlings of fashion and design and architecture. Mm-hmm. They saw, you know, Blade Runner as kids, and that is stuck in their heads. So, it's you know. visually delicious. There's just no mm-hmm. other way to put it. Uh, it is Blade Runner 1982, Ridley Scott, independently produced, but uh, released by the Lad Company and um, released again and again by yeah. And again and again, again and again. And again by There's Warner not going to be any end to it, really. Uh, Isn't that- I heard there was a sequel, but George says... It's a uh, it's it's a sequel. I, I heard of it. They were remaking it. That's why I heard in New Orleans that they were remaking it from uh, various people. But, but George says it's a sequel. So well, well that's see, just the most know? tenuous, most tenuous information about it out there. Yeah. So that could all change. Yeah. And all the different versions that we watched. Keep in mind, they keep re-releasing this. Like an eight-track tape goes to a cassette tape goes right. to a CD. Uh, right. Right. And and, and we have right. Had it's co- just been put out on Blu-ray in the back of our necks. Yeah. And- George has often talked about how the director can't keep their hands off their work and they're back there getting the negative. This is no different. You know, Ridley Scott can't seem to, so I think he's just going to start this all one. Over well, this again. one is interesting. The, the interesting thing about Blade Runner is that, and Scott is a different, it's kind of different when it comes to alternate versions of his films because he doesn't do this a whole lot. I think there's only two that he's done this to this one and Legend. And in the case of this one, you know, Blade Runner came out and in the original year of its release, there were two versions. There's the American version and the international version. And the real only difference between the two is there's a little bit of gore in the international version that is not in the American version. Hmm. So the film comes out. It didn't do very well, but it started picking up steam on video. And then in the 90s, they found this work print, this work print that was the was shown to preview audiences. And it, can, it has all sorts of stuff in it that was never in the final film. And they were going to show this. But so they Scott used said, that like basically as a demographic yeah. test and then edited it right. to okay. and, but Scott said, Well, no, I really don't want you to show this. Let me work on it. There, you know, I there's some things I've been wanting to do with this, but 
they ran out of time, but they did this 92 release that is called a director's cut and has, again, a few very interesting tweaky changes. But it wasn't until 2007 that they got him to do what is called the final cut. But it wasn't like George Lucas where he's changing it every couple weeks. And also, unlike George Lucas, Ridley Scott is more than happy to have people go back and see the original version. Whereas uh-huh. Lucas does not want the original version of Star Wars to be shown anymore. Now, we have decided we think the original one is the best because that's what everybody came to see. But one not, of the pro- not, let's not say best. Let's say that's our perfect film. Oh, that's okay. our perfect film. Mm-hmm. Excuse that's me. That's our perfect right. film. Yeah. Um, but we understand that this is what got under Ridley Skin's. Excuse me, Ridley I'm so sorry. Scott. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott skin. Right. Ridley Scott skin. But this, we're going to play this little thing. Uh, I'd quit because I'd had a belly full of killing. But then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. And that's exactly what Bryant's threat about little people meant. So I hooked in once more, thinking that if I couldn't take it, I'd split later. I didn't have to worry about Gaff. He was brown-nosing for a promotion, so he didn't want me back anyway. Interestingly enough, it kind of disappears and then reappears at the end of the movie. Yeah, the, and this, yeah, the the over voice, excuse me, the voiceover was added after the fact. Uh, Scott did not want it, but the producers who had kind of taken control of the film because it had gotten totally out of control money-wise. Uh, they said, people don't understand what's going on. we got to do this. So it's like a film noir, so put this film noir. So they wrote the text, yeah, actually. They, the text they wrote in. it and had him say oh, And a lot of people accused Harrison Ford of deliberately reading it badly because he didn't want it either. And, and, and that Ford tone says, is very awful on that. Yeah, you can just hear how moronic the tone Ford is. Ford says he want, you know, he did it to the best he could and the way he, you know, the way he was kind of instructed to do it. And I, it never bothered me. Of course, at, the, didn't time, me either, at the time, there was no other version. But that's what they're trying to do is mimic some of the detective films right, from the, the 40s. Because this is a, like a, an evolution of noir only in color. Uh, with and in the future. Incredibly right. cluttered sets and landscapes that look like pyramids and cities and things like that. Now, there is a chance that people, uh, some people listening may not have ever seen this movie and don't really know the you sort of gotta the be idea. kidding we do have someone who's explaining a replicant do we want to give a little bit of that or would yeah, you like to well, sort of like well let me, let me I'll, real quick i'm not going to even get, try to give the whole story because it's really complicated but in the basic and as you heard in the opening it takes place <laughs> in the future this company has created these incredible uh replicant androids that that mimic humans in every way and they did it to do work that that to would kill that, humans right, basically exactly. well, that's what you said in that guy that came in here and read yeah. that thing in the beginning but the <laughs> the big fear the big fear is that because they're so much like humans they will start becoming human and they don't want them interacting with the humans so they're given a, a lifespan of 4 years so the blade runners are given the job of when a replicant, when a Nexus Six replicant comes back to Earth, they have to kill them. Yeah, the replicants are chasing their shel- shelf life, basically, right. right through this whole picture. And then, and so, so uh, uh, Deckard is given the job of coming back and and ridding the city of these replicants that have jumped ship and come back to Earth. They were designed to copy human beings in every way except their emotions. And the designers reckon that after a few years, they might develop their own emotional responses. Hate, love, fear, anger, envy. So they built in a fail-safe device. Which is what? Four-year lifespan. (laughs) 
Now, there's a Nexus 6 over at the Tyrell Corporation. I want you to go put the machine on it. And if the machine doesn't work? Hey, you know, um, when you see a replica in this movie, they usually have crazy red eyes and things like that. And lucky for you, Warner Brothers released a special version with red eye remover in here. <laughs> So if yeah, you're annoyed by that, we have the technology that's, that's now. right. Photoshop cut. <laughs> Photoshop cut. So if we you start seeing those replicas that are really in the owl, you know, oh, you hit that red light, you know, the, the little button that gets rid of their red eyes. If you're so. just joining us, we're talking about Blade Runner. Uh, Ridley Scott's 1982. That was the first of many versions, but 82 right. was the first the world saw Blade Runner. Uh, independently produced uh, and, um, and changing the, the face of movies, I would say. Uh, not only movies, but like we said, changing the face of fashion, of fashion, of the automobiles, one, of clothing. Of the shoes. girl who's the performer with uh, the snake. Yeah, who, this is Joanna Cassidy. Joanna Cassidy. Oh, that's the hot scene She's here, man. just amazing. She's got this like bikini situation on with with um, with um, rhinestones glued to her skin, right. and then she, when she goes to run, she grabs a raincoat or a coat clear that's plastic. clear plastic. It looks so cool. Mm-hmm. And, and interesting cool thing about I read about her, uh, she seems very comfortable with that snake on her. Yeah. Uh, that's because it's her snake. Oh. In yeah. real life, that was well, her there pet you snake. Go. <laughs> Some of the, the images you see in this movie frequently are eyes. Everywhere you look, it's always the point of view uh, eye. You see eyes everywhere. In fact, in the very beginning, when they're showing you the landscape, there's, it's always intercut with an eye. Yeah, they and use it's, replicas. It's, Rutger Howard's character Roy, it's his, it's his eye, eye, and his and the city is reflected in his eye. Mm-hmm. And eyes are so important because that's one of the ways they can detect the, the how they're, they're they're so realistic that um, virtually nothing but how the the how the, the yeah how they do not react to an emotional response. But but but, but your, by your becoming, pupil widening or narrowing, right? They're becoming very dangerous because they're evolving and they're becoming emotional. And one of the two things that you know. I'm kind of curious about in this picture whether it's in revisions on scripts is whether our Blade Runner uh, Harrison Ford is actually a replicant because they hint at that. Well, this and this has been a, a sort of a one of those uh, barroom things of people get together and talk about movies and especially Blade Runners. Is Deckard a replicant himself? Yes. And now in the original version, there are there's maybe one or two little clues, and this is a thing that gets interesting when you get into the '92 version. They add a couple of things to it. Now, when there's a scene when Deckard is at his piano and he's looking at photographs because photographs become a big issue. The replicants have photographs, but these people never existed. They didn't have childhoods. Why do they have childhood photographs? So we see Deckard sitting at his piano looking at some of his photographs and wondering. Now, in the, the standard release version, he's just there, and then he gets up. And he goes over and does a long sequence of looking at uh, at Leon's pictures, but in the internet in the '92 version, he falls asleep and there's a very short dream sequence of a unicorn, a unicorn running through the forest, which doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, until you get to the end of the movie, and Gaff, the character played by Edward James Olmos, has left behind a little origami unicorn, saying. I know that you, too, are a replicant. And you'll hear Sean Young, the character that Sean Young plays, ask him, why don't you take the test? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is also, in so, that same scene where, where, he, where she ends up at his apartment and they talk, there is one short sequence 
when he walks around behind her and he's out of focus, he looks back at her and it looks like his eyes are glowing. Yes. Yes, that is correct. And here's the other thing in this movie, <laughs> and I'll probably get some rocks. Uh, pull, you know, they'll probably pelt me with rocks and garbage. But, what but and however, yeah, I, every day I wear the, um, you know, this flak jacket the, the guys shame. wear, you know. And <laughs> I paint different faces on that trash bag when I walk out there so nobody will hit me. But anyway, uh, there is... There's a certain amount of romance between Daryl Hannah and Rucker Hauer on like they're going to procreate. Mm. And there is one scene where Daryl Hannah, when she's laying on the ground, and I know I don't know of any costumer that on any movie that I would ever work on that would put that imprint of what looks like a feminine napkin. So you so that could be. So not everybody you watch. I'm going to go back and look at that because I sure didn't notice. And you can believe I'm going to get my DVD. I'm going to pause that. And I stopped and I looked and I thought <laughs> I don't know of any costumer that would do that. That would do that. I, and and it makes me wonder if they had you know kind of messed around with that in the script that they were trying to procreate somehow maybe the story got too convoluted for I think that. it's interesting that through these releases it, it creates sort of like a sub world of people that really pay attention to every detail it almost like keeps the interest going so these clues were in this one and not this one and that it's almost kind of a brilliant move on the part of Ridley Scott too well and one of the real puzzles about this movie and I actually did know the answer to this but I have forgotten it is at the beginning, the number of replicants kind of changes. At one point, they talk about six replicants yes. disappearing. That's interesting. But when know. he gets into the office, there's only four. Hmm. They talk about one getting electrocuted trying to get into the Tyrell Corporation. But what happened to number six? Hmm. Now, from what I've heard in an early version, there was another, re- there was another replicant that was kind of a mother figure. And I don't know if she's the one who gets electrocuted. I, and maybe I don't know what the other one was. I think that writer got fired. <laughs> and they said, yeah, we can take care of it. Nobody will ever notice well, any and, of that. And the other interesting thing is the title itself, Blade Runner, does not come from the source material. It's not in Philip Dick's original story. Blade Runner is a completely different novel, has nothing to do with this, written by Alan Norse, and then William S. Burroughs turned it into a screenplay. And so Scott for whatever reason, like the title Blade Runner, bought the rights to the title from Burroughs and Norse, and they are credited at the end of the movie. They are thanked for the use of the title. And in in the original book, a Blade Runner was a person who delivered illegal medical supplies in this story. It is uh, just fraught with um, facets, very, very, very multifaceted Mm -hmm. in in all ways. And I have to say that um, watching this again, one of my all-time favorite movies to watch again and again is Fifth Element. And I hadn't seen Blade Runner in a long, long time. And I was struck, as never before, how much The Fifth Element owes to Blade Runner for its visual look. It, I mean, it, it doesn't bother does. me. It's almost like a, it's almost like an homage. It's almost, it, it, I don't feel like they stole. Right. It's more like it's yes. kind of interesting. It could be that like Fifth Element because it I believe it takes place in New York. I think I believe I think so. New York, and uh, so it's like New York. This is what's going on in New York while Blade Runner is going on in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. That kind of. But thing. hold on there. Stop the music. Yeah. This can also be somewhat of an homage to the Third Man in that really cool ending when it's raining and they're on the ledge. Which only goes to show you my law of movies. It's not my rules. My law of movies, and I should be quoted on this. You There's should. only two real villains in movies. Uh, one is Nazis, and the other one is Gravity. And this movie's got it in spades because we're talking about 
like, you know, the white supremacy race that they're developing. And this is all very Nazi kind of stuff, you right. know? And, uh, and gravity also. And gravity is always, falling. you know, right. yeah. They're always falling throughout this movie. They're always gripping, just like in Third Man, they're gripping the edges and everything. A little bit of Orson Welles in here. But again, gravity and Nazis, you're two big villains in movies. You know? Well, and speaking of the supremacy, there is one very uh, interesting scene that I believe we have a clip, a sound clip from. That's right. When uh, Roy Batty gets his way into the Tyrell Corporation to basically to meet his maker, played by the uh, the wonderful Joe Turkell, and this little bit of uh, a dialogue happens between them. You were made as well as we could make you, but not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long, and you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things. Also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven for. He's kissing him there, so we had to make sure you understood that this is a, a real bond. Right. And then, should we explain kind of what the rest well, that, of those sounds are? That that kind of crunching sound you heard at the end was uh, Roy crushing uh, Tyrell's skull like a melon. Yeah, and the jello sound you hear is his thumbs going into his, his eye socket. Yes. Uh, okay. It's always been one of our favorite Very scenes. Yeah. Because and that is the, yeah. that is the scene that was altered in the 1982 international version. You, it's much more graphic oh. than it is in the standard version. It's Blade Runner, 1982. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've thought about when he says you're, you know, about burning so bright, and it burned. You know, I, I think well, about that scene a lot. Yeah. Because it's also it, it's interesting to think of all the the religious allusions that continually show up in this movie, especially in this scene. They talk about the you know the god of of Mike or whatever, and yeah. and, and also he's the prodigal son. And um, after he has killed Tyrell, you see him in the elevator, and first thing you see are the stars coming down, like he is dropping. He's being, you know, excommunicated from heaven, oh, and he's going down. Yeah. And he has this most amazing, you know, he kind of looks up, and then he looks down, and he scowls, you know. Yep. And then at the end, at the very end, when he's, you know, he, he knows his time is coming, and his hand is crunching up, he pulls a raw nail and drives yeah, it through drives his palm. Yeah, he drives a nail through his hand, man. You know, it's, it's that scene, you almost feel bad for Rucker, even though he kills his maker. He comes back, it's very Greek, kills his maker, man. Yeah. There's something about all of it that just is engaging and continues to be. And I guess I kind of hope in a weird way that they continue to change it and edit and add clues. I can't get enough of Daryl Hannah doing, you know, she looks so and, good. And she's a real gymnast. I mean, I don't know if she did those stunts. I try maybe to get my girlfriend to wear that black stuff over her eyes and <laughs> go like out with it. me with a wig on. That'd man. be great. Go up and can of cry on. Hey, shh. <laughs> <laughs> I need some excitement tonight, honey. Come here. If nothing else, this film is one of those great ones where you can watch it over and you can have some really heated discussions about what does it mean? Gentlemen. 
Well, that means we are already almost out of time. Let's take a quick look back at the rules. It creates this rule, that's for sure. Yes, it does. Oh, my heavens. And it created a subsequent uh, imitation world. It not only created its own world, it's been creating our world as well. (laughs) And it wholly sustains our world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it still has lots of meaning and lots of entertainment. And if they keep Walk downtown in New York City and look at Times Square, look up, you'll think Blade Runner. Right. Either one of these versions... It's probably, I don't know, but we can't numerically rate. We can't. (laughs) They're all unique in their own way. There's a version of Blade Runner for every member of the family. And they just make a lot of Warner Brothers executives, middle management, of course, rich. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, please write to the Film Guys if you have some thoughts on any of this or anything else. It's filmguys at perfectmovie.net. That's filmguys at perfectmovie.net. You can also catch us on iTunes at npr.org at Facebook. Facebook. Search filmically perfect there and uh, become a fan become a part of what we do and we always love to hear your thoughts your considerations and uh, take a moment to click back with the film guys J. Todd Anderson thank you for being here today thank you very much George Willeman always a delight thank y'all I'll see you next time thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.